2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, is the Fed really about to press pause on rate hikes? I'm Tom
3: Busby in New York. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. What next for the BOJ?
4: I'm Kaylee Lyons in Washington, where Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is getting set to take the hot seat in front of the House Financial Services Committee.
5: I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where tech leaders are gathering as a leading industry body has warned the UK risks losing its attractiveness for the sector.
6: That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the
2: Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with this week's latest two-day Federal Reserve meeting on interest rates. And joining me now to talk about what to expect when the Federal Open Market Committee wraps up on Wednesday, Bloomberg Global Economic and Policy Editor Michael McKee. Michael, well, the Fed has lifted the federal funds rate by a staggering five percentage points in the last 14 months to curb runaway inflation, which is still running at more than double its 2% target. And after 10 interest rate hikes in its last 10 meetings, many Fed watchers feel the Fed is going to pause its rate hiking plans and not raise rates this week. What are you expecting?
7: For the first time in in many years, I can't even remember the last time I said this, I don't know what the Fed is going to do. Uh, It's a close call. They are divided over whether they need to do more and when they need to do more, if they uh, do uh, more. And uh, while Wall Street has settled on the idea that they're going to not raise rates next week, uh, they don't know. It's still an open question of whether they say, but we will in July. Uh, I think the case could be made either way, and we don't know what the CPI is going to show us on uh, Tuesday. So if we get a strong CPI, then the Fed may lean towards raising rates in June. If it's uh, more benign as the forecast would have it, then they probably will hold off so they can see what's happening with the economy but right now it does look like with inflation as you mentioned way above their target that something more has to happen
2: well let's go back to that cpi uh, do you have uh, any indication of what we're expecting on that uh, and why
7: We are expecting a drop in uh, the CPI, uh, the headline CPI down to 4.2%, which puts you in that range of 3% the Fed is anticipating by the end of the year. And uh, Y would relate to a couple of things. Uh, Energy uh, prices have gotten less expensive, but in large part, it's uh, used cars. They're, again, declining in uh, cost. Uh, The other wildcard out there is housing we've been expecting housing prices to start to uh, fall within the cpi to or rise at a significantly slower pace uh, there's some signs of it it hasn't happened yet but it's anticipated to happen anytime so that too could add downward pressure
2: well let's go back to some fed policy they've been out there speaking not not recently but at a pause in june does not mean the fed's done with this current cycle of hiking rates now, one of those who thinks we're not done, Neil Dutta, head of U.S. economic research at Renaissance Macro. Let's hear from him right now because he spoke to Bloomberg very recently.
8: The economy is far more resilient, as you know, than, 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 is, than is appreciated. And that's going to mean that the Fed's ultimately going to have to do more than what's, than what's priced. Now, what are the chances, Mike,
2: that Dutta's right? The Fed will have to do more than what's priced in.
7: Well, I I hate to sound like the two-handed economist, but I think it's about 50-50. A lot of the data do show strength in the economy. We've had strong job creation. The Jolts jobs data show a lot of job openings still in place. We did see jobless claims rise by a lot last week, but we don't yet know if that's a one-off because it was just one week's data or whether that's the beginning of a trend. But consumer spending's hung in there. We're seeing uh, signs of business spending still remaining relatively strong. Uh, We know that new home construction is relatively strong. So you can make the case, as Neil does, that the Fed is going to have to do more. The other side of the story is that we are going to see consumer spending weaken as people's nest eggs start to dwindle. Uh, We're going to see more supply chain problems out there, particularly if the West Coast dock workers go on strike. Uh, Housing may not come down as fast as uh, people want. And we've already picked the low-hanging fruit for inflation, and it's just going to get harder and harder to bring it down. And so uh, the Fed may not have to do more uh, and just wait until we see uh, the cumulative effects of all the tightening that's been done start to hit the economy.
2: Well, now, we also heard from former vice chair of the Fed, Richard Clarida, now global economic advisor at PIMCO, and he's talking about possible rate cuts. Now, he's not saying until 2024 after more rate hikes this year. Let's hear what he had to say.
8: The Fed has penciled into its projections a pretty sharp slowdown of the labor market. They have the unemployment rate going up to four and a half percent by the end of the year without any cuts. So I do think if there are cuts, it's really a 2024 story. But yeah, I think the bar's high
7: what do you think of that? (laughs) I agree with uh, Rich that it is a very high bar for the Fed to cut rates this year, simply because we're sort of running out of time for the bad news to pile up. It it certainly can, but uh, the Fed is pretty convinced that it's going to take a lot more, whether it's just sitting on high rates or raising them even further, to bring down inflation towards their 2% target. So they do not want to cut rates. The only thing that would drive them to do that is if we had some sort of crash in the economy, Uh, a slowdown, if growth stayed positive, even if growth went negative for a quarter or possibly even two, although no sign of that at the moment, they're going to want to leave rates where they are. Then the question is in 2024, where's inflation and where's the economy? So Yes, there could be rate cuts next year. Once the Fed reaches its peak, it's usually seven or eight months until it starts cutting rates. Uh, So it's certainly possible. But I think one thing we have learned over the last two years is that it's almost impossible to predict what's going to happen with the economy.
2: That's for sure. Well, and a lot of things are changing. You know, we talked about uh, the unemployment rate, which you know the Fed has a target of four and a half percent. Now it's just three point seven percent. I mean, only six months to go in the year. No rate cuts this year that we heard Clara to talk about. But how would that affect uh, you know this this wide gap? in what the Fed has said, 4.5%, and what it is right now?
7: Well, I think come Wednesday, you're going to have a different number from the Fed. Uh, that prediction was made in March, and we have seen stronger than expected labor markets since then, and to get to four and a half, you would need a a significant deterioration in the labor market, something uh, like we saw in the household survey this past month, continuing for the rest of the year. Uh, So I think they're going to have to mark up, and the Fed officials I've talked to have said they're going to have to mark up their, uh, well, mark down their their unemployment forecasts. Uh, We will also get new forecasts for inflation, and we'll see, based on what we've gotten from the PCE and the CPI, which have both come down, not as far as they want, but they've come down. We'll see if they anticipate it coming down any faster, which might give a clue as to the policy path.
2: Yeah, no, and that has been good. It's moderated a bit in April, which helped consumer spending jump a little higher. May forecast to show continued cooling in prices. Um, But what should we be watching for, again, exactly on CPI? You said 4.2% still double the Fed's target rate?
7: We're, we're past the, the I guess, peak danger, and we've taken the uh, low-hanging fruit off the tree in terms of bringing inflation down. The real question now is how fast do service prices come down? You've heard Jay Powell talk about that a lot. and Those are heavily driven by wages. We're seeing in the uh, jobs numbers that there's still – concern about uh, hiring for service industry companies because they were the last ones to be able to fill jobs. And unless that stops or until that stops, we probably don't see wage gains drop significantly. And so at this point, um, you're looking at some time before inflation moves in, moves far enough in the direction of what the Fed says it wants.
2: And let's circle back again to housing, because I, I, it's such a huge part of, of what they're watching, a huge part of the economy. Three jobs for every house that goes up. Mortgage rates have come off their recent highs, still very high, though, 6.81%. And because there are so few homes on the market, home prices stubbornly high. Mortgage demand is lower, down 27% from a year ago. Also, homeowners, we just found out, saw their first annual decline in equity in more than a decade, at least according to CoreLogic. How important is is all this? this uneven recovery in housing, or maybe even a slowdown.
7: Well, housing is a, can be an important component of GDP, and we have seen it drop off as such in the last couple of quarters because they're not selling very many houses. Uh, they are still selling new houses like hotcakes and uh you know, Builders are, are throwing them up as fast as they can because there is housing demand. What we're not seeing is the turnover in existing homes because with uh, low mortgage rates locked in for so many people who refinanced over the last few years, why do you want to trade a 3% mortgage for a 6% mortgage if you're moving? So uh, that does keep supply down and prices go back up and that will uh, also hurt cpi in the longer run but uh, we've talked about the delays in getting
2: the declines into cpi it'll be a while before we saw that a lot to watch out for michael thank you that was bloomberg's global economics and policy editor michael mckee and coming up on bloomberg daybreak weekend decision day also coming up for the bank of japan i'm tom busby and this is bloomberg This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, a big week for tech in London and Paris with some high-profile industry events. But first, in addition to Decision Day at the Fed, we also have a decision coming from the Bank of Japan. And for more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague Doug Krisner.
3: Tom after surprises from the Bank of Canada and the Reserve Bank of Australia we look forward to the Bank of Japan meeting in the coming week but if you're looking for change from new governor Kazuo Ueda don't get your hopes up in the beginning of this term for the governor in particular you you know how it goes you need to build your credibility and you the first thing you want is to avoid any any missteps so gradual and rhetoric is probably what uh, what you should expect for for this meeting.
6: Xavier Barrington, there from HSBC Asset Management, and perhaps bearing that out. Only three out of 47 economists polled are expecting a tightening move at that meeting. That is down from 18 in the previous survey back in April.
3: Yes, instead of June now, it seems that July is the most likely month for a change in policy. This was from about a third of respondents. The timing appears to be moving back a little because we've heard the governor repeatedly signal the need for continued monetary stimulus. Joining us now in our studios is Taro Kimura, Bloomberg's Japan economist who spent more than 10 years at the BOJ. Taro Kimura, thanks so much for joining us. First, this poll was taken actually before we got the stronger than expected GDP numbers of growth of 2.7 percent in the first quarter if, if it's annualized. Does that change anything for the BOJ? Uh no I don't think so
9: I'm also for the stay and I am expecting the big shift will finally happen uh the latter half of the next year so like thing is that the Japan's demand is very weak And although you you see a key strong uh, indicator such as today's GDP, but it's just a rally from a very subdued level due to a pandemic. It's just uh, on the way to recovery. So that doesn't mean like, you know, the BOJ is committing to 2% demand-led inflation, but the demand level itself is not enough to ignite inflation. So that's why BOJ will keep continuing
3: saying stimulus is needed. A few moments ago, you said you didn't expect a change or an adjustment in policy until the latter part of next year. Did you mean next year or this year? And in either case, what would be the main catalyst?
9: Yeah, I meant 2024. So I'm putting myself a very late person, wow. actually. Wow. Uh, but I'm talking about a big change. Uh, I'm barring the risk scenario that the yen is depreciated too much again, or the Fed is going to a rate hike world again. Maybe there would be a tweak to YCC. But in the base scenario, BOJ want to continue stimulus because looking at Ueda's communication, he's clearly committing to it that he's keeping YCC until he will see a demand-led steady 2% inflation and in my assessment it's very far below as i said uh, in uh, in terms of the demand and at the same time putting your foot into a BOJ's shoes, in history they've already failed to exit from an unconventional monetary policy twice. It was a very scarring experience for BOJs. So that's why my take is the BOJ will very, very carefully communicate and build the case and finally made, made a big change in the next year. Well, that's an interesting
6: point. Laying the groundwork for a policy change. How might the BOJ go about that? Again, Xavier Barrettin from HSBC Asset Management.
3: Next steps may be uh, uh, further widening of the yield curve control uh, bounds and uh, and uh, leading the rates to continue to uh, creep up steadily. But I think, again, the, the BOG is, very, uh, is paying a lot of attention, making sure that uh, their actions are not interfering with the uh, the healthy organic growth that we've been seeing, really. And it's, uh, it's quite important for them. Again, that's Xavier Barrettin from HSBC Asset Management. So, Taro, when the adjustment does come? Will it be very gradual, like we just heard there? Or do you think they'll wait long enough that they can make a more dramatic move?
9: Yeah. In the April meeting, as you know, the BOJ announced it, it will conduct a policy review, and it will take a year or maybe a year and a half, and I think the BOJ will use it as a stepping stone to communicate and build a case. And actually, Ueda acknowledges the negative side effects of the current scheme, like vacuuming too much JGB. But like you know, since the interest rate is already zero, it has not much effect for stimulating. So maybe like you know, Ueda will m- make a case to get him back to more for a normal, like controlling the short-term ills, But like he will carefully build a case that. Those, uh, the new f- framework will be still as accommodative enough. And like it's, it's a sound policy framework. He will communicate like that through a policy review.
6: I think we can agree that that uh, 2.7% rate on annualized growth for the first quarter was pretty impressive. Is there the chance, though, that growth in the second quarter will be markedly weaker?
9: Oh yes. Uh, looking at this one Q GDP, it's the half of the growth is driven by private inventory, and also look, looking ahead, like you know, the real wage is dropping. Although, like we were expecting, the nominal wage growth after the uh, reflecting the result of annual wage hikes, but it's the nominal wage growth itself is decelerated. The real wage dropped. Furthermore, that implies. For the second quarter it's going to be a damping on for a recovery of consumption after the post pandemic recovery of consumption
6: it's kind of very interesting because if you look at the equity market in japan uh, the Nikkei is trading very near a 33 year high is there the risk here that if ueda were to send the wrong signal that that may be kind of or become reflected in equity prices in a rather sharp and negative way?
9: I think what's happening in the real economy and stock market should be, like, thought separately. So, stock market is, you know, it's, like, coming over to a price for the first time in, like, 20 or 30 years. It means, like, we didn't exceed the price level since 1980s or something. So, maybe, like, you know, the Japan stock, I know the stock price, uh, stock that suggests, like, you know, the investors think Japanese stocks are cheap. And actually, Japanese big firms are investing a lot abroad. So that's why they incorporate the growth for of the international economy to, to their earnings. But in in terms of the domestic real economy, still it's weak. So that's why BOJ keeps stimulating. Maybe that's supportive for uh, the stock prices. I don't think any wrong message will coming out uh, from Ueda in the next meeting.
3: If we take a broader look at the original Abenomics plan uh, and look at the third arrow about corporate reform. You mentioned a little bit about corporate behavior. Uh, Are you seeing enough reform uh, in the economy compared to what was hoped for and expected?
9: The new corporate governance for Japan's firms are introduced under Abe's initiative, and it has been almost 10 years since it has started. So like kind of gradual improvement in the Japanese corporate governance uh, is a is is supporting current rally in Nikkei stock prices, but on the contrary, like you know, in in terms of the domestic real economy, as I have mentioned, although Kuroda has it has done a, a extreme stimulus, it proved that that doesn't boost domestic uh, economy well.
6: Is there a way in which this policy begins to intersect with the political environment in Japan and uh, the ambitions
9: that uh, Prime Minister Kishida would have? Um, I don't think that, like, you know, such issue will uh, happen in a highly probability. What I mean is that my baseline scenario is a BOJ will keep stimulus, and I think the government will be happy with it. And, like, you know, Abe is gone, and Kishida, I, I guess he doesn't have a specific own strong view on the monetary policy, so that's why there will be... Less pressure from the government side to the BOJ,
3: but would the BOJ simply be cautious because it looks like Kishida will soon call an early election?
9: Oh yeah, um, if like you know, if the BOJ is seeking for a policy change right now, maybe it's it might be one of the factors that the election will be coming, or and maybe they should pause. Maybe it's it's not a decisive factor, but it might be one of the factors. But my my guess is whether doesn't think any change at all, so it doesn't
3: matter to BOJ. Taro, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, we really learned a lot. Taro Kamura, Bloomberg's Japan economy Economist, who, by the way, spent more than 10 years as an economist at the Bank of Japan. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian and Doug. And
2: coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a big focus on tech in London and Paris in the coming week with two high-profile tech events. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg
6: Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, to London, DAB Digital Radio, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak
2: Weekend. Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Challenges facing the tech industry will be in focus in the coming days in Europe with two big industry events taking place in London and Paris. And for more, Let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll.
5: Tom, we're heading into London Tech Week, where industry leaders are gathering to discuss the UK technology ecosystem, while over in Paris, the focus is on startups and innovation at Viva Tech. Now, these events are happening at a time when there are questions being asked about the UK's place as a tech hub post-Brexit. Plus, there are broader discussions happening in the industry around regulation, particularly when it comes to artificial intelligence. So to discuss all of this, I'm joined by our tech reporter, uh, Thomas Seal. Tom, great to have you with with us in studio for this. This is a good time to check in about what the big discussions are in this industry because we have all these tech leaders uh, in Europe, particularly uh, coming to London for London Tech Week as well. What are the big themes that you'll be watching out for during these events?
10: So I think uh, the UK's role, as you say, as a tech hub is really in question at the moment. It's got undoubted strengths for startups, but after that, there are big question marks about um, scale up, as they call it in the industry. You know. Getting from that 100 million valuation to a 5 billion valuation, investors um, seem to increasingly come from the US or abroad. Um, uh, but beyond that, I think uh, there will be some reckoning of the Silicon Valley Bank fallout mm. and the sort of uh, funding landscape. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank executives, now part of HSBC, of course, will be talking. Um, there are um, panels about sustainability, about diversity and inclusion. I think something that's not on the official agenda so much, but will be a huge topic, obviously, is artificial intelligence as well. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that scale up question is really interesting because there was
5: so much was made of the fact that Arm, you know, a UK tech name was deciding to list in the US and not in London. Um, that's the sort of thing that particularly politicians can get very antsy about. Um, let's talk about the interaction between politics and and technology as well. You've been reporting um, about this complaints really from the industry body Tech UK that the UK risks falling behind if the government
10: doesn't overhaul its policies. What does the industry want from government? Yeah, that, that statement, that document from Tech UK, it was um, striking. I think some lobby, lobby bodies are much more uh, whingy. So when they when they kind of bring out language like that, it's quite striking and, uh, you know, something is amiss. Uh, what do they want? I think they, they complain in the document about um, the sort of short-termism of some government initiatives. Uh, the government is very keen to pat itself on the back, they say, with... Uh, phrases like we're a tech superpower science superpower but then longer term thinking seems to be somewhat absent so just that sort of strategic um mouse. um they also say some more practical complaints uh, such as lab space is very expensive here uh, connecting to the electricity grid which is important if you're wow. for instance uh data center or making microchips um seems to be a problem in the uk uh, so it, it was a 60 page document it went through sort of more than a dozen different uh, areas and there were quite a few complaints but those are two that come to mind. What are the key strong
5: points of the UK's tech industry if we're thinking about it in a post-Brexit context where the government's really keen to promote tech industries what are the, the sort of things that the
10: UK should be looking to build on? So uh you mentioned arm and that is one of the UK's most valuable um sort of homegrown champions and that is uh, an area where the UK definitely sees itself as having a strength which is why its decision to list in New York was um quite a blow. Um the UK strengths include uh, its education system, you know, research, university spin-outs, a lot of these become really interesting uh, startups, things like Oxford Nanopore Um, I think, uh, again, then it's the question about how do you get them into becoming a kind of a global company to get to that next stage as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then uh, regulation is seen as very strong in the UK. That's not building companies, but it's still really important when you look at the impact something like GDPR had out of Europe, which obviously pre-Brexit, the UK helped write. that helps set standards and helps shape everything that uh, these companies
5: do. Well, in, in a post-Brexit world, is that somewhere where the UK could diverge
10: and do something different to what the European Union is doing? This is a, a big ongoing debate. I think we're seeing it um, just this week with AI. Uh, the EU has um, you know, published an AI Act, uh, which uh, is quite specific, um, more so than the UK's approach. The UK has published a white paper, which is really pretty vague and delegates a lot of responsibility and uh it sort of indicates that the UK is trying to be seen as a bit lighter touch a bit friendlier come here uh sort of a slightly offshore, uh, business-friendly alternative. This is a conversation we've been having on Bloomberg Daybreak
5: Europe in the past few days about the rapid rise of artificial intelligence, particularly generative AI, and how it should be regulated. We discussed this with Nate Sheridan from the Centre for AI Safety. Here's what he told us.
8: I think voluntary can work. Voluntary can work if it has teeth. We have voluntary regulation many things and it's something that can work if it has uh, teeth and there's, there's different ways to do that. You can design product liability schemes so that people are incentivized to enter into voluntary regulation to be behind liability shields. That's a familiar form of regulatory structure and it's something that would work in this environment. What exactly needs to be regulated? Capabilities of models and another obvious target for regulation is the actual training of the model. We can regulate the chips and we can prevent large training runs from happening. And when it comes to the capabilities of the models, credible third party auditing uh, can be done in order to evaluate them and to uh, say exactly what these things can do. I think that if you put AI in charge of things uh, that can themselves cause harm, then the AI can themselves cause harm. I think it's not hyperbole to imagine that People will slowly but surely turn over control of systems to powerful AI, and that those AI will make decisions that cause harm. I think that's that's not science fiction. That's a, that's what people are being incentivized to do. That's Nate Shardon from
5: the Center for AI Safety. Look, I mean, it's a pretty stark warning to say that that's the extent of where AI could go. How well, I suppose, prepared or well positioned is the UK
10: to take a lead in this area? The UK is increasingly keen to take a lead in this area. There are calls uh, from, from UK officials to have some kind of uh, global agency headquartered here. Uh, in fact, like the international um, atomic um, mm. kind of body, uh, has, has one global agency. Um, Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, was in London meeting officials and he spoke to reporters and he was um, saying that yes, there needs to be a lot of international cooperation, He didn't explicitly endorse London, but he didn't shoot it down either. He hasn't been terribly favourable when discussing UK regulators in the recent past either after they blocked the takeover of Activision. Indeed. Uh, and he um, he did not uh, roll back those remarks. Um, he also outlined some of the potential safety or regulatory um, manoeuvres that could be used to, to sort of mitigate some of these dangers. Uh, he was saying that there's different layers of AI. There's applications sitting on top. There's the models themselves, which is the main focus, things like chat, OpenAI. open AI. And then there's also the infrastructure beneath it, which I thought was really interesting that AI is ultimately working on data centres. And, uh, you know, if you if you're running powerful models, running critical infrastructure um, using AI, that's ultimately based somewhere. Those processes are somewhere. and so there need to be rules around that as well. And um, then you could you know, theoretically have some sort of a kill switch.
5: Yes, definitely something really interesting to think about when we think about the future of that technology. I did mention uh, VivaTech in Paris uh, at the start of our conversation. And, you know, this is a, a kind of an ongoing conversation in so many areas after Brexit is the competition between European capitals. In terms of tech, you know, how is that
10: competition going? Well, the UK uh, loves to roll out. Uh, UK politicians love to roll out a line that the, there are um, more startups, more unicorns in the UK than I think France and Germany together. Um but people have likened Brexit to a slow puncture. I think that France probably has, uh, um, you know, seized on this opportunity. So as Amsterdam, so as Estonia, you know, uh, and uh, w- w- I think uh, London still is probably the best uh, place in Europe for things like fintech. Mm. But. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a much more active competition than perhaps it would have been It's a battle, active. certainly, between those capitals to
5: get uh, secure those new businesses and to grow them as well. Thanks very much to Bloomberg Tech Reporter Tom Seale there as we look ahead to London Tech Week. And we will bring you key interviews uh, from that event on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6 a.m. in London and 1 a.m. on Wall Street. Tom?
2: Thank you, Stephen. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend... Turbulence in the U.S. banking industry in focus as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen heads to Capitol Hill. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
0: The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. As fallout from the recent U.S. bank failures continues to reverberate through the economy, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen gets ready to testify before the House Financial Services Committee this coming week. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines.
4: Yeah, Tom, the Treasury Secretary has to do this every year, appear before the committee to give her annual testimony on the state of the international financial system. It's happening this coming Tuesday, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, and of course it follows the drama over the debt ceiling and the Treasury's ability to borrow, as well as multiple bank failures in the U.S. earlier this year. So I'm guessing she may be in for some tough questions. And I have some questions now for someone who knows all things Treasury, Christopher Condon, who covers that and economic policy for us here at Bloomberg. So Chris, thank you so much for doing this. What do we anticipate Yellen is going to be asked? and then say on Tuesday?
11: There are a couple topics that Republicans on the Hill are particularly interested in grilling Yellen about. Number one, there's an executive order that's in the works, has been in the works for a very long time within the Biden administration, that would seek to restrict outbound investments to China. Uh, Now, this would complement other policies uh, like export controls, and inward investment restrictions that are there for uh, uh, national security reasons, as the Biden administration says. And Yellen um, has said before that this coming order would complement those. And basically the idea is to prevent China from using U.S. money to develop technologies domestically that it's prohibited from buying. Hmm. from the U.S. and other countries. Um, and so, you, you know, let's not allow them to use U.S. venture capital companies that bring in cash and know-how, crucially, to help develop technologies that, we, that the United States doesn't want them to have. Now, this is controversial. Um, a lot of Republicans are very doubtful about the effectiveness. In fact, Patrick McHenry, the Republican from North Carolina, who the is chairman of the, the chairman of yeah. this committee, wrote a letter to Yellen last month expressing his severe skepticism, <laughs> let's say, about how effective this would be. Um, China uh, really doesn't have a shortage of capital flowing into the country. It's not like they're dying. Uh, they have a big uh, capital account surplus, he pointed out. In the letter, he asked Yellen, you know, well, can you give me examples of mm-hmm. past – instances where U.S. investors helped China develop technology we didn't want them to have. I think he's responding to some concerns in the venture capital community that these Mm. restrictions might be overly broad. The administration has promised that they would be narrow, but they have given zero details publicly so far.
4: So that's kind of on the international level, but I wonder what kind of domestic-facing questions she may get, given we have seen bank failures, given she will be testifying just hours after we get an inflation print here in the U.S., the day before the Federal Reserve makes its rate decision. How is she likely to characterize the U.S. economy at the moment?
11: First of all, she's got a line that she's going to use. She has used it for months and months. She sees a path Mm. for the U.S. economy where inflation can be brought down close to the Federal Reserve's target 2% for PCE inflation, without dramatically increasing unemployment. That's, you know, the proverbial soft landing. I would hope that she would get pressed on that. I have myself tried to press her, okay, you see this path, but one might say that if you saw a 10% chance of that. What probability do you sign to it? Is it greater than 50%? Mm -hmm. Is it lower than 50%? I personally would love to hear members of Congress press her on that and some – uh, hopefully will, uh, because this, this line about seeing a path is a little bit overly vague.
4: All right. Well, we'll see how she characterizes it come Tuesday. Janet Yellen going to be in the hot seat. Thank you so much to our Chris Condon, who covers the Treasury Department for us here at Bloomberg News. And Tom, I'll send it back to you.
2: Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg one newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.